Can you hear me? Great. I'm Simone, and I'm an alcoholic. My home group is the Friends of the Pelican. We meet on Anna Marie Island, just off of Bradenton. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and my sobriety date is April the 25th, 1967. I think, uh, you know, we own a, a lodge up in Alaska, and uh, we have some banquets. Never any this big, and I think we need to give everybody that did the cooking and everything a hand tonight. I thought the food was delicious. Great job. And yes, the third time that can of whipped cream came around, it brought back a lot of memories. <laughs> I'm glad I'm still alive <laughs> to remember them. Um, you know, I, I've heard a lot of stories, your stories, and some of the lives you lived, and, and as you were raised as children, I, uh, I know why you had to drink. And, and some of you had some really tough childhood. I came from a, a large family. I was the seventh of eight children, and uh, no alcohol, a very loving family. We grew up fairly fast. Uh, it was in California. My father worked for the oil company, and, and the oil company felt so sorry for us that they gave my dad an acre of land in the oil fields to raise a garden. And we didn't have freezers in those days, and so we canned. And every year, we'd put up 60 quarts of whatever it was, tomatoes, corn, string beans, and our garage was just lined full of shelves for our food. Had a cow who didn't like me. He would chase me <laughs> for the milk. Uh, had some chickens. And in our family, when you turn eight, you started cooking for the family one night a week. And as soon as you could get a job, you got a job. And the best thing about that was you got to buy store-bought school clothes. <laughs> and I lied when I was 11. Physically, I looked 16, and that's what I put down on the application. And I got a job in Lido Isle. I lived in, in Huntington Beach, California. And Lido Isle was a, a few miles away. It's where John Wayne and Lucille Ball and a lot of movie stars lived there. And I got a job there working, selling hamburgers at their private yacht club during the summer. And uh, it was great being, being able to uh, buy school, school clothes that were store-bought instead of mother having to make them. We also were given, once you got a job, you were given a utility to pay for the month. And mother would rotate those utilities so it would be, you know, the water bill was always cheaper than the light bill. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, um, I kind of, when I look back now, I think that was kind of the beginning of me being somebody I wasn't. 11, trying to act as 16. And I was a hard worker. And they didn't have cash registers then. And, and you had to add it up in your head and make the change and all that stuff. And I was a hard worker. And we, were, we grew up to be very uh, independent. Don't ask for help. If you can't get it yourself, you just don't ask it. And boy, was that hard when I came into AA really hard to ask for any help. Um, 
you know, they tell us not to forget our last drink. My last drink in that time in my life is pretty hazy, but I can remember that first drink to this day. I was 14 years old, six couples at a house. They were all over 21, and uh, they thought I was 18. <laughs> and I got, took that first drink of the drink. It was a screwdriver, and I remember feeling that fuzziness on the tongue, you know, and that warm feeling going down. And I knew, I knew from that day I had found the answer for Simone. I knew that that was going to be a part of my life forever. I felt a part of. At home, I was uh, moody and, and, you know, didn't feel like I fit in there. And yet, I, I have no reason to feel that way. When there's no alcohol in your house, <laughs> it's hard to get it. At the age of 14, I tend to uh, date older boys. So I, and I got a fake ID right off the bat. Anyway, I got through school and drank when I could. And uh, about that time, I kept thinking, you know, there's got to be a reason why we're here on this earth. There's got to be a reason why we're here. We were raised in a religious family. We prayed over our meals. We prayed at night before we went to bed. I knew there was a higher power, which we call God. Um, when I took that first drink... I stopped praying. I never prayed again. The guilt was there, and the things I did under the influence, and not always under the influence of alcohol. You know, people would say, well, the alcohol made me do it. Well, I wanted to do it, and so the alcohol gave me the courage to do the things I shouldn't have been doing. Anyway, I, I didn't pray any longer at the age of after 14 when I took that drink, and I, uh, so when I graduated from high school, I thought, there's got to be a reason why we're here. And I met a man about that time who had a, he was a paraplegic. And he'd gotten hurt in the army on the back of a motorcycle in Texas. A drunk had hit the motorcycle, and uh, him and the driver of the motorcycle was thrown off. And the guy who was driving the motorcycle was able to get up and walk away. And um, Herb, the man I, I married, uh, didn't have a scratch on him, not a speck of dirt on him, but was paralyzed from the fifth vertebrae down, 21 years old. I met him when he was about 28. And I had the thought of, you know, maybe if I thought I loved him, I, didn't, I know today I didn't know what love was at that time, I uh, thought, well, you know, maybe if, if we got married and he had a home. He had his own home. He was service-connected and had his home, but a family-type home. That maybe that would make me feel like I was worth something here. You know, I would have been, I would have done a big favor to him if he had never met me, really never met me. Anyway, we did get married, and we went to New York. He went to a Boulevard watchmaking school on Long Island and Woodside, and I had never been out of Orange County, California. I swear I was at a different, in a different country. I know they were speaking English, but I couldn't understand the word they were saying. <laughs> and I was this little, little beach girl, you know, from 
Southern California. Anyway, we took a convertible that drove it up there that we had, and uh, I had never seen snow before. And December came around, and I, and I wanted to go to Manhattan and see the Christmas lights. Hunting, Huntington Beach at that time only had two-story buildings, nothing higher. <laughs> and this was uh, in 1960, 1959, 1960. And uh, <clears throat> so I talked him into taking me over to Manhattan to see the Christmas lights. And we took another gentleman with us who was also in a wheelchair. My job was to put the wheelchairs Get, they would get in the car, and I would put the wheelchairs in the trunk of the car, and then I'd get in the back seat. Uh, the car had hand controls where my husband could drive it. Well, we get over to Manhattan, and I talked him into putting the top down because I wanted to see those tall, tall buildings and those beautiful Christmas lights, and he didn't. Well, he didn't. I did. <laughs> You know, the, the convertibles today are so different than the convertibles in those days. <laughs> Not too long ago, I was at a stop sign or a signal down here, and I saw a man push something on his dashboard, and the trunk of his car opened up, and the top slid down in there, and he did nothing. He just sat there in the car. <laughs> and I'm sitting over there with my mouth open. I had never seen that before. I remember the convertible, and maybe some of you do, where you actually had to do some things to get that thing down outside of the car. Well, I got out of the car and put the top down, and uh, in the meantime, I'm drinking some wine down there to keep warm and had some grapes, too, which are horrible to clean up the next day. But <clears throat> I, the, the Christmas lights was everything I thought they would be. It was beautiful. I felt like a little five-year-old. Oh, look at that one. Look at that. Oh, look at there's Macy's windows. Oh, my God. You know, it was just beautiful until I passed out. <clears throat> they could not get me awake to put the top back up. You laugh. They weren't. <laughs> but you know what? There's a long tunnel between Manhattan and Long Island that you go to, it's covered. And they drove there and they got to the apartment we were living in and I'm still passed out. And it took a while for them to get me awake. And they were so upset with me when I woke up or got up, got their wheelchairs. And I told them, I said, I don't know what you're so upset about. You have the heater, you've got a radio and you've got each other to, you know, talk to. Why are you so upset, you know? Um, that was my attitude at the time. They didn't speak to me for a couple days. And my drinking from that, you know, it just got worse and worse. We went back to California after we finished that school, and the marriage wasn't doing well at all, and we decided that maybe if we adopted a baby, that would help me feel whatever it was I was supposed to be feeling. So we adopted Jackie, our son Jack. He was a day old. Beautiful little baby. And uh, that didn't help the marriage. I'm lying, cheating, stealing, going out on him. I, uh, it took six months for the adoption to be legal. We went through a lawyer in the agency.
And uh, as soon as it was legally, our son was legally ours, I started taking things down from the top of the, the kitchen where he couldn't reach. He didn't know they were up there. You know, and I, I rented an apartment back in the town I was, I was raised in Huntington Beach. And slowly I started putting a few dishes and, and uh, then one day, and I'm telling him every day, everything's fine and I love you. And the day where I moved out, took the baby in the crib and my clothes and left him a note and said, I've left you. You can't be a human being and do that to another human being without using something to ease the pain. And I had to drink more and more and more. The shame and the guilt and the remorse. The only release I got was through the drinking. I continued to lie and cheat and steal. I went back and got a job. Uh, when I married him, I was working for the city of Huntington Beach, and I went back and got a job there again. And I would go out for one drink with the employees and says, well, I gotta go home, take, pick up the baby and, and go home. And they thought I was just such a good little mother. What they didn't know is I was picking up the baby and, and another babysitter and taking them home, feed them, and then I would go to bed and set the alarm for nine o'clock at night. And I'd wake up. Babysitter would stay over five nights a week. I'd go to a bar in the next town because I didn't want, I didn't want the uh, employees of City Hall to see me drinking and acting the way I did in bars. And I'd go and, and uh, close the bar down. There was, it was a piano bar, and I got a thing going with the piano player. And I was home. That was the only place I felt at home was in that piano bar. I'd walk in and people, my seat would be right at the corner of where he was playing and whatever song he was playing, he'd stop and he'd play my song and then he'd play my second song before he went back to his whatever he was doing. And it wasn't until I came into AA that I realized how sick my song was. <laughs> my song was Born to Lose. <laughs> And when he'd sing, when he'd sing that, I, it was my song, and, and he was doing it for me, and I felt the love and the attention. <laughs> the second song he'd sing for me was, Is That All There Is? <laughs> you know, my husband of today <laughs> uh, just got us, we got a new car with a satellite radio and Willie Nelson uh, fire station or whatever it's called. Anyway, I haven't heard, I keep listening for those songs to be on that station. I haven't heard them in a long, long time. Anyway, I uh, was having lots of blackouts, lots and lots of blackouts. I started going to a little bar in my town across from City Hall in the morning. And they were open, open in the morning because they served breakfast there. But it was a bar. And I'd go early and get a Bloody Mary. We were t I was a typist and my hands could not, my fingers could not touch the manual typewriter without a drink. I, I had to have that drink in the morning. And there was a guy in the bar who was always drinking coffee. He was on his 
way home from work, and we'd get talking, and he'd see me every morning before the other city employees come in to order that Bloody Mary. And then by the time the city employees came in and started eating their breakfast, I'd say, Susie, I need another one. And I'd always say, remember, it's a virgin. <laughs> and she'd wink at me and said, yeah, I know, Simone. <laughs> now, you know, you and I, we know. I mean, for somebody to say that every day. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy uh, who was drinking his coffee uh, started, you know, he asked me out. And at that time, I needed to have my car. I needed to be able to go when I wanted to go, or, or I had to have my car. I'd meet you someplace. Anyway, he asked me if I, uh, and, and like I said, I was having lots of blackouts. I'd have people in my car that I'm driving, and I don't know who they are, and I don't know what, I'd have to drive further down the road to see what town I was driving in. And uh, just doing a lot of things that I needed to drink <laughs> in order to forget about them. Don't think about that, Simone. Just take a drink. Don't think about stealing that money. Just take a drink. You don't have to go there. Just take a drink and it's going to be okay. That was my whole thing in life. Uh, don't go see your parents or your brothers and sisters because there's no alcohol there. Anyway, this guy asked me out for a date and I said I'd meet him and and it was in the town, he gave me this address, and it happened to be in the same town where that bar, where my piano bar player is. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll meet him, but I don't like him. I can just say goodbye and go to where I usually go. So anyway, I went to uh, this address. This was 1967. I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, ever. I, and... Uh, just doing a lot of things that I needed to drink <laughs> in order to forget about them. Don't think about that, Simone. Just take a drink. Don't think about stealing that money. Just take a drink. You don't have to go there. Just take a drink and it's going to be okay. That was my whole thing in life. Uh, don't go see your parents or your brothers and sisters because there's no alcohol there. Anyway, this guy asked me out for a date and I said I'd meet him and and it was in the town, he gave me this address, and it happened to be in the same town where that bar, where my piano bar player is. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll meet him, but I don't like him. I can just say goodbye and go to where I usually go. So anyway, I went to uh, this address. This was 1967. I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, ever. I had for and they start the meeting like we used to do, the format and everything. And I looked at this guy and I thought, oh, that poor guy has a problem with alcohol and he wants me to help him. <laughs> Not knowing he'd been two years sober. By the time the meeting was over with, I was really upset with him. I thought, how did he know so much about me to tell them? Um... After the meeting, a man came up to me who happened to know my family, and they were, they were well-known and well-respected. And he said, Simone, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here with Dave. <laughs> and he says, well, I, I didn't think you had a drinking problem. And I just looking at him. He says, you have a watch on. I know you work at City Hall in Huntington Beach. I know that car out there is yours. He said, uh, we believe that you have to 
lose all those, those things for this to work. I had no idea what he was talking about. Some lady pulled me away from him and said, don't listen to that old fart. She said, you can get off the train anytime you want to get off the train. And I'm thinking, I haven't been on any train, you know. Now, I'm thinking I'm the woman of the world. You know, I'm 26 years old, and I'm a bar drinker, and I'm taking care of myself, and blah, 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 blah. And you guys are speaking a foreign language, and I had no idea what you were meaning. They, uh, we went for coffee with a group of them afterwards. And they stayed there. A group of them stayed there with me because they knew I was a bar drinker till 2 o'clock. Then all of a sudden, it's like they had inner bells going off in their head. 2 o'clock, and they get up and go home, you know. They knew that I was safe to go home. That first, you know, it was a few months later, and there was a woman getting a, a cake, and it had a candle on it. And I thought, well, she's older than a year. <laughs> and then I thought, uh, and then I put two and two together and came up with four, at least. Sometimes I come up with five. And I thought, well, how corny that is to celebrate time that you haven't drank. And I remember feeling sorry for her. I thought, oh, that poor dear has gone a whole year without drinking, <laughs> you know. I just could not imagine I remember about that time I told this woman, I said, you know, I was listening to read the traditions and I don't have a desire to stop drinking forever. I can try not to drink today, but I don't have a desire to stop drinking. So does that mean I'm not a member? And she looked at me dumbfounded. <laughs> and she says, yeah, I think so. But keep coming back. <laughs> and there was a man there that heard that and he said, you know, there's a long form of that tradition. And he said, it says something like, uh, our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. And he says, do you think you suffer? I said, oh, I suffer from everything. I, I'm a, I suffer. <laughs> That's why I need to drink. <clears throat> but I'm willing to not drink today. I, that, you know, they said, uh, I heard people say, pray for God to remove that obsession. I thought of drinking all the time. I white-knuckled it. And yet I was afraid, you know, such a childlike, childlike. I don't know where I got this from, but I, got, I later found out that Abraham Lincoln said it. So somebody must have said it to me. But it was, you know, it's better for people to think you're a fool then open mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> and I was one from a small child all the way up. Don't ask any questions. Don't let them know you're thinking that way. Or don't let them know that you don't know. So I never asked any questions. And uh, so people said, you know, pray to have the obsession removed from you. And I thought... I can't do that. What if it is? And one of these days, I'm going to need to drink. And I'm thinking, if it's removed, then maybe I wouldn't be able to drink. I mean, that doesn't even make sense to me, you know, today. But that's the way I, I thought. So I never prayed to have it removed. I came to meetings for five years. I remember uh, them talking.
talked about sponsees. Well, they didn't. They talked about sponsors got pigeons. And, you know, I was on a bowling team before I came into AA, and when you were sponsored, you had to wear their T-shirt and said, you know, I'm sponsored by so-and-so. And I thought I was going to have to say, I'm Betty's pigeon on my T-shirt. And I wasn't going to have that. <laughs> in fact, about that time, I don't know in Florida when it happened, but there was a saying that said, shit happens, and, and it looked like a bird, a flock of birds had flown over you, and, and on your T-shirt, it looked like a flock of birds had flown over you. Well, I saw this satin white jacket, baseball kind of jacket, and this T-shirt and a baseball hat that said all that. Shit happens on every single one of them. And I thought, finally, the world knows how I feel. And I bought the whole outfit. <laughs> I went to this woman and with my new outfit on. I, you know, I'm 26 years old. I'm thinking I'm looking pretty cool, you know. <laughs> and I go into her house and, and I strut in there with my satin jacket and and the shit, you know, all over it. And she looks at me and she says, what are you doing? I said, I finally found how I feel. It said, you know, the world knows. I, and this is me. And she said, go in there and get in my closet. <laughs> find a blouse or a t-shirt that you can wear and come back out. And I did and I have my clothes in me. And, and you know, I'm supporting my little boy, and I'm paying my own bills, and that took a, a little bit of money to buy that little outfit. And she took that from me and threw it in the trash can. All three items. Wouldn't even let me keep the baseball cap. And she said, you know, she says, if you feel or think that shit happens, then it's going to happen. She said, you can't wear that. I didn't know what she meant. She was the same woman that said, Simone, you have the ugliest face there is. She said, your face is ugly. She said, you could buy the whole world a gift. I said, I don't have any money to buy anybody anything. And she said, this isn't going to cost you one penny. She said, I want you to go home and try to find a pleasant look and put it on your face. She doesn't have to be giggling, doesn't have to be smiley, smiley, just a pleasant look. She says, it looks like, you know, the world is, is killing you. She says, put that pleasant look on your face and go to the mall and walk down the mall with your head up. You don't have to say a word to anybody, just your head up with that pleasant look. I went home and tried to find a look. Went to the mall because I was afraid she wouldn't like me. And, I, you know, I, I was just doing the thing. And you know what? I went to the mall. People smiled at me. They smiled at me. Some even said hello. And, and I, I got it. I got it. I was always the one in the room, sitting in the back of the room. I recognized you by your socks and your shoes and your knees. Um, I could never look you in the eye. Anyway... I uh, came to AA for five years, wanting to drink. Really no sponsor, hadn't read any book. I would get up and leave meetings when you talked about God. I didn't see what God had anything to do. I believed there was 
presence of God. I still wasn't praying because I thought I had to get worthy first. And I'm still lying, cheating, and dating your husband. In fact, I was very busy those first five years. I married two of you. <laughs> I had two more babies, two more sons. A few years later, after the third divorce, my sponsor said, you know, sick people attract sick people, Simone. She says, if a man even smiles at you, you run. She says, because he's got to be really, really sick if he sees anything in you. But think about it. Sick people do attract sick people. What I found out is well people can attract well people also. Um, with five years of untreated alcoholism, untreated alcoholism, haven't had a drink. I'm going to meetings. I'm watching your ashtrays. Chuck Chamberlain, probably some of you know him or heard of him. Uh, we used to, we had a young people's meeting on Friday night in Laguna Beach. This woman said I could go down there, but I had only on Fridays. I had to go where everybody did this together. No matter what color you were, what your sex was, what, if you'd been in prison, we do this together, she said. You don't do, do special interest meetings. And, but she says, I will let you go down to the young people's there. 26 was considered pretty young in the 60s. And uh, we let Chuck Chamberlain come to our meeting. <laughs> but our format was if you were over 40, you couldn't participate. <laughs> so I didn't know who he was. He was an old man even then in my eyes. And, but he'd come in and he'd listen to us. And then he'd invite us to his house. And he lived in a beautiful home in Beverly Hills overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And his wife would have a, a bar of ice cream and everything you could fantasize to put on it. And he would get us in his house and then he would talk to us. And, you know, I look back now and those were special times. But at the time, it was just something to do on a Friday night after a meeting so I wouldn't have to go home. Anyway, five years of not drinking and untreated alcoholism, and not a release valve. No steps and no release because I didn't have the alcohol. That, and the shame and the guilt, the remorse is so strong in me. I uh, tried to drive my car through a brick wall. And uh, I ended up inches before it and went to a, a woman's house and she took me to a, a mental institution there at Hogue Hospital, and a, a psychiatrist talked to me. He asked me three questions. What day of the week it was, what month it was, and who was the vice president? Now, I had gone to a little bit of college, little, but I couldn't answer any of three of those questions. <laughs> and I remember telling him, I don't know. And who cares, just who cares? He went to the door and told my friend, he said, uh, Simone's a keeper, and we're going to keep her here. <laughs> I spent six weeks there. And again, I didn't tell them I was an alcoholic. Why should I? I hadn't had a drink in five years. It couldn't be anything about that in my mind, and that's exactly what it was, untreated alcoholism. I wanted the alcohol to be the problem I didn't need to work those steps. I just wouldn't drink, and I'd be okay. And I got sicker, sicker sitting in these rooms because nothing changed.
change. My thinking didn't change, so my actions didn't change. I told myself if they ever let me out of here, I'd, like I said, I had three little boys and was married to the third husband. And uh, I said, you know, I've seen people change that came into AA after me. Maybe I'd get that sponsor and work the steps and see if I had a desire to live, much more not drink. And, I, and when I left there, their solution for me, they said, Simone, you carry the whole world on your shoulders. They said, I don't want you to listen to the news on TV. I don't want you to read a newspaper. And do not listen to any country music. <laughs> and goodbye. You know what? Today I do all three. <laughs> as much as I want to. <laughs> uh, but I did get a sponsor. And she took me word for word. I would misinterpret. You know, you say only read the, the black. Don't read between the words. And I, I would misinterpret. Simple thing like, you know, God as we understand him. I'm waiting for you to tell. It says God as we understand and you never took me in the back room and told me as we understood him. That's my interpretation, you know. This woman took me word by word by word through the big book and the 12 by 12. And I got to see, I got to see how really sick I was with my character defects. And I got to finally get some release through working those steps of that shame and that guilt and the remorse through, through doing the steps eight and nine. Um, you know, when I first came into AA, they said, come on in and we'll love you till you can love yourself. Well, by that time, I was so, the only way I knew love, I knew how to give it or you to show it was through sex. And so when I heard you say, come on in and we'll love you till you can love yourself, I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I got myself into now? Um, what I actually know today is that you can love me all you want, but I can't feel it till I work those steps and learn to love me, learn to love me. Then I could feel your love and I could love you. But it wasn't till then. It wasn't till then. Anyway, uh, got through the steps and things are going well. And this husband I'm married to had been in Alaska. He was raised there and uh, he wanted to go back there. And I had never been out of Orange County other than that short time in, in New York. And so we agreed to take our sons and, and go up there. Well, we moved to a place called Homer that had one group, two meetings a week, three members, and the oldest one had two years of sobriety. And I'm thinking, how, and, and I'm from, you know, Southern California, and I'm thinking, how do these people stay sober or get sober and stay sober on really no fellowship and, and meetings like that? Anyway, my husband and I, who, who both of, you know, he was staying sober too. Um, we decided that, well, maybe we didn't need to go that 16 miles to that little meeting. Uh, we could do this on our own. 
Now, I know the fellowship does not give me recovery from alcoholism. I know that when I tried to run myself into that brick wall. But I also learned, I'm thinking I can work these steps on my own. I don't need you. I can take that inventory every night. I can meditate and pray and improve that conscious tact daily. I can, I can do those steps on my own without the fellowship. Well, the marriage lasted, uh, we got there in May and that following February, snow up to here. We bought a couple acres of land up in the hills and we were in the process of building a little cabin. We've got four walls and the tin roof on, A-frame. And my husband gets up one morning and says, I uh, knew there was something I didn't like about Alaska. Now, he'd been after me for about five years to move there. And I said, what? <laughs> he says, I don't like snow. <laughs> so he sold the car, our only car, in order to get a plane ticket to go back to California. And I decided to stay there. I had a job with this little, with City Hall in this little town of 4,000 people. And, uh, but at that time, not being at meetings, had my thinking reversed very fast, back to that old way of thinking. That selfishness and self-centeredness. Uh, poor me. Wasn't praying every day. Wasn't bringing God into my life. When he left, um, that depression set in and the only answer to me at the time was suicide. A person had loaned us their hunting rifle, moose rifle, to get our moose for the year. And we'd gotten the moose, but we hadn't returned the rifle yet. And I had uh, borrowed a car and went to this overlook of this beautiful scenery of the water on a hill with glaciers and volcanoes in the water and bald eagles. And it was about 7 o'clock at night. And I had taken the kids to some friend's house, and I took the rifle with me. And I thought, you know... I failed again at this marriage. I'm no good. All that silly, sick thinking came back. And I pointed the rifle to my head, wanting out. It was too painful to be here. And my finger, thumb, could not reach the trigger of that rifle. Uh, my arm wasn't long enough. I used to think that that's why I'm here today. I know today that I'm here because God wants me to be here today. I threw the rifle when I couldn't read. I, I wanted to be sure I killed, I killed myself. I didn't want to maim myself, so I thought I had to shoot myself in the head. Anyway, some of you have been nice enough to tell me how to do that now. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but that night, I threw the rifle in the backseat of the car and went home and, and was just... You know, you can't even do that, Simone. You, you just can't even do that. What I heard, I heard in my ears, not a thought, but I heard in my ears, Simone, you've got to get a relationship with God. First and foremost, a relationship with God. And that's what I went. I went back to that meeting. They made me, they, they three members, and they wanted to belong to AA as a whole. So they wanted 
and a GSR. They elected me as a GSR. I did not tell them I tried to kill myself the night before. <laughs> they didn't know that for a year later, I t finally told them. Anyway, I told them that they were silly to make me their GSR because I didn't even have a car. And they said, oh, don't worry. We'll see that you get to your monthly meetings and, and everything. Well, our district there in Alaska where I was, it's 200 miles, <laughs> just the one district. And uh, we used to pick up the GSRs and we'd move it around the meeting so some people didn't have to drive as far as the others. Anyway, a few short months later, they had the election for the delegate in Anchorage, which was 200 miles from where we lived. I was so excited about going. No car yet. <clears throat> but this one gentleman, he said he would take me with his wife and little girl. He says, I know a man who owns a liquor store, and he'll let us sleep on, they have indoor-outdoor carpeting on, in his liquor store. He said, we can sleep on the floor of the liquor store, and then you can get up in the morning, go to the assembly, and vote. So that's what we did. <laughs> I fell in love with service. I fell in love with service. And uh, I, I got to do that. And through the years, I, you know, uh, 1988, I was elected delegate. And that first assembly I went to or conference I went to, I, uh, I had completely forgotten about the convertible and me drunk. <laughs> Right on the streets where, you know, uh, that was the last year that it meant that, that the Hotel Roosevelt. And I, I, that memory came back of that young girl in the back seat of that car passed out. And here, this woman is sitting on the conference floor voting for Alcoholics Anonymous something on an agenda item. And I just got chills thinking, how did that little girl get to be this woman? in those years. Um, about that time, I stayed away from men for six, seven years. I learned how to have friendships with men without sleeping with them. And you guys are wonderful. The best part, though, is I learned to have women friends. Women friends on a whole different level. I was sponsoring a young girl there who... Uh, her stepmother had passed away, and uh, she introduced me to her father. Actually, we went to her father because we were going to a district meeting, and I had by that time gotten a little car, and her father had these great big fancy cars, Cadillacs and, I don't know, fancy cars. And she wanted to show off and take his car to the district meeting. And our district meeting, she had to stay overnight. Sometimes they were so far away. So we went by, and, and she introduced me to her father, who uh, had gotten out of a treatment center a couple years before then. Wasn't going to very many meetings. I hadn't seen him. And uh, anyway, he, uh, we took his car and went, and he called about a week later and asked me out. And uh, I've got to tell you today that I've been married to that man for 27 years. And uh, I have not cheated on him. He lives by a, uh, whatever you call it, that it's not finding the right person, it's being the right person. And he brings me a cup of coffee every single day.
stay in bed, even when I'm not awake. <laughs> and I've never had a relationship. He adopted two of my boys. The oldest boy still had a relationship with the, the first husband, but the other two had no relationship with those fathers. And so he adopted the two boys, and, and they are, they're meant to be his boys. They're meant to be his boys. Um, our youngest boy, I promised him I'd mention his today. His name is Jesse. His birthday is today, and he turned 40. <laughs> and uh, he is running our business. Our, my husband had a lodge, and it's a restaurant. It's a nine acres, and it's a fishing lodge, and it's, but it's open year-round. And our son with five grandchildren and his wife is running that business so we can be out here being retired. We've uh, moved to Bradenton four years ago. And I have to tell you, um, in Alaska, that, that little meeting that was meeting two days a week, it now meets two day, two, twice a day, seven days a week. Still only one group. And if everybody showed up at the same time, there'd maybe be 40 people. And that's been, you know, 34 years later. Um, I sponsored quite a few of the first women but you know, when you're sponsored, you want your sponsees to sponsor. So I hadn't sponsored in a long time th through the steps. And when we moved out here, I've got to tell you, if you are not taking somebody through the steps, I hate to say this because my, my kids say I'm the best in putting a guilt trip on people, but shame on you, shame on you. I really, the rooms out here are full of women and men, I suppose, too, that are wanting somebody not to be a best friend, not to somebody they can call and, uh, this, he's not doing this or blah, blah, blah. They're wanting recovery. They're wanting somebody to take them through the 12 steps of recovery. I am sponsoring a lot of women. I've got to tell you, I have changed greatly in the last four years being here because of me taking a different woman five days a week, sometimes six, through, through the steps. I, this, you know, I used to pray in the morning. They say pray. I, I would ask, beg, you know, please give me, I need, I want... And then I would throw, them under the, throw God underneath the bed and go out and be whoever Simone was going to be that day. And then night I'd bring them out from under the bed or the closet and say thank you. <laughs> Through the years, I now don't beg any longer. I thank him in the morning for keeping me sober. And you know what's best? I take him with me during the day. And your life... If I'm in it, it's much better with me having my higher power between me and you because I'm going to say things differently when I can feel the presence of my higher power with me. And for me to know that I'm here not for God to give me I need I want, but for me to want to be of service to him, has happened, and it took a long time for that to happen. I was at a meeting the 
the other night, day, and I need to quit really soon. Um, big meeting. The, the, the meeting was celebrating their 29th anniversary, and a woman got up. I happened to know the man that brought her to the meeting, and she got up, picked up a white chip. We didn't, we don't give, didn't give chips when I, I got sober. You got your name on the cake. But anyway, after the meeting, somebody, a woman, went up to that woman and said, you need to stick with the women. You know what? It's none of my business how a woman gets into these rooms. Who brought you? Why you're here? I am supposed to go up to you and offer my name to you and my telephone number if you'd like to visit. Not about who brought you in here. If somebody would have asked me that when I first came in, you know, you shouldn't have come to the meeting with him. You need to stick with the women. I had no women friends. God knows. God got me here. God got those women here. And we need to look at that of how we're feeling and judging people. I, uh, I'm going to get off my bandwagon. <laughs> anyway, I'm thrilled to be here. I am becoming the person I was born to be. And I have stopped being the person that I had become. And it's because of you and the fellowship and my higher power. Thank you for letting me be here.